My wife and I have a granddaughter named Kennedy. She's two years old. And uh, the other day, her mom and dad were putting her to bed. And her mother, Amanda, was telling her what they were going to be doing the next day. And they said to Kennedy, tomorrow we're going to go and we're going to go to music class and you're going to sing and you're going to dance. And she loves her music class. And little Kennedy's laying there in the bed looking up at her mama. And she says, no, I can't go to music tomorrow. Amanda looks at her and says, well, why not? And this little two-year-old puts her hands in the air and she goes, cause I'm too busy. I don't know what kind of schedule they've got my granddaughter on. And I don't think she has the clue as to what busy is. But obviously, she has heard her parents and her grandparents talk so much about being busy that she can actually put it in a proper context. All of us are very busy people that live in a very busy culture. In fact, our culture uses busy as son of a badge of honor. We love to talk about how busy we are. Anywhere in the course of a conversation with someone early on, it's going to get into about how busy. How you doing? I'm busy. Man, I am stupid busy. I am crazy busy. I'm killing. I'm just busy, busy, busy. And then we affirm it. Well, that's good. It's better to be busy than not be busy. I mean, we lift this thing up, and then we even lie. If everything's kind of slowed down, we'll make up the idea to make it look like we're busy so we don't like some slacker or some kind of loser. I mean, we, we love to compare our schedules, and, just, and we hold it up as a trophy. It's a sign of significance. How busy are we in this country? Well, the Bureau of Labor Statistics came out with a few stats about America's busyness. How busy are we? Well, in America, we work 137 more hours per year than Japan, 260 more hours per year than Britain, 499 more hours per year than France. France must not work at all. (laughs) But we work more than most of Europe and some of the Far East, and I'm not sure our economy is much better than theirs. Around the world, there's 134 countries that have maximum work week laws. The United States does not. You can work every hour of the week. We don't care because we got to produce and we got to perform. How busy are we? We spend eight times more hours working than eating and drinking. Now, what that says to me, in our limited amount of time of eating and drinking, we really pack it in because we're one of the most obese countries in the world. How busy are we? We got some leisure time too. We average about five hours of leisure time per day. But over half of that, 2.7 hours, is used to watch TV. We're so worn out. By the time we get to some leisure time, all we want to do is let the stupid box just blow over us for two and a half hours a day. And we got thousands of channels for us to do it. How busy are we? Well, you know that apostle, that prophet, Jerry Seinfeld? Have you heard the apostle, the prophet, Jerry Seinfeld? Well, he talks about how busy we are. This is what he says. He says, I'm so busy doing nothing That the idea of doing nothing, which as you know, always leads to something, cuts into the nothing and then forces me to have to drop everything. You know, Anonymous, anybody know Anonymous? I didn't know Anonymous was so busy. Here's what Anonymous has to say about busy. I'm so busy right now that if anything bad happens to me, it'll be at least three weeks before I can begin to worry about it. Anybody feel that busy? And then here's a question that Anonymous asks. Does running late count as exercise? How many of us in this room, if running late counted as exercise, we'd be in pretty good shape right now. 
Yeah, why are we running late all the time? Because there's so much stuff we're having to get done in a given day. To get it done and get there on time is nearly impossible. Yes, we live in this cluttered, very clamored, crowded, chaotic pace of our society of performing and producing. Man, we feel the frantic pace of that every single day. And it's into this chaotic, clamored world that thousands of years ago, God speaks to Moses on Mount Sinai in the middle of nowhere in the middle of East with millions of Jews at the base of that mountain waiting for Moses to come down. And he's just delivered them out of Egypt and they're headed to a promised land of rest that God has provided for them. And into this chaotic world, he gives Moses the Ten Commandments and the fourth commandment speaks directly to the heart of this tyranny of performance and production. And this is what Exodus 20 verse 8 says. Remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work. But the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, neither you nor your son or daughter, nor your male or female servant, nor your animals, nor any foreigner residing in your towns. For in six days the Lord God made the heavens and the earth, the sea and all that's in them. But he rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. You know what God's saying to him? In the middle of all this chaos, in the middle of all this clutter and this clamor, you know what he's saying? Breathe. Take a breath. He's creating breathing room within our lives. This is the divine pause button. To help us get recentered and reordered into what the fast pace of life is really all about. Now, what we got to understand is that this Sabbath principle, this Sabbath rest idea, it didn't come into our world when God gave Moses this commandment. No, God put this Sabbath principle in place all the way back at the beginning of time. It's a part of his created order. In fact, he makes reference to it when he gives this command to Moses. He said, I rested on the seventh day of creation. So this Sabbath rest goes all the way back to the beginning of time. In fact, let's look at that in Genesis chapter 2. This is 1 through 3. We see this, this, this creation account. And this is what it says. It says, thus the heavens and the earth were completed in all their vast array. By the seventh day, God had finished the work he had been doing. So on the seventh day, he rested in all, from all his work. Then God blessed the seventh day and made it holy because on it he rested from all the work of creating that which he had done. The idea of this divine pause button, the idea of this breathing room, it's a part of God's perfected, created order. Remember, when he creates everything, it's very good. Sin has not come into the world. This is not a fallen world when we're talking about the created order. And he made man and woman, he made Adam and Eve to be workers, to be producers, to be people that were able to accomplish and achieve and accumulate. He made us, it's a part of our God image design, but it seems like he also knew that we had the tendency to let that be our God and get caught up in that. So he puts within his perfected order this divine pause button for us to be able to recenter ourselves. What is the idea that God rested? What do you mean? Was he tired? Was he worn out? You know, God doesn't get tired and worn out. He didn't need a vacation, he didn't need time off. In the Hebrew, we look at this idea of rest. It simply means this. It means to cease from doing and settle in to what has been done. 
Listen to that again. It's very important. Cease from doing and settle into what has been done. Cease and settle. Say that with me. Cease and settle. That's the idea of rest. What God did is he ceased from creating because he was finished. It was done. But then what did he do? He settled in to what he had created. How did he do that? He took residence in his creation in that he rules and reigns what he has created. And creation is complete because the creator has taken his place in creation. He has settled into it. That God ceased from creating because it was done and settled into that to rule and reign. And he completes creation. Creation is not complete without its creator. So to us, this idea of rest is to cease from doing and settle in to who God is. And what he's done. If I could make the Sabbath principle. And what we're talking about here is a Sabbath principle. Here here to me is what this Sabbath principle is saying to us. It's saying this. Life is found in who God is. Not in what I can produce. Will you read that out loud with me please? Life is found in who God is. Not in what I can produce. That, that's what he is in essence saying. That's what he was saying to Adam and Eve. Because he made us with the ability to produce and perform and accumulate and accomplish and achieve, which is God-given. But he never intended for that to become our God or to be what drives our life. So he puts within his created order this divine principle, this pause button, this breathing room. By which we constantly remember and reminded that life's found in him, not in what I can do. That's within his perfected order. Well, what happened? Sin came into this world. We disobeyed God. And we disordered his divine order. We brought disorder in. And that's how everything's gotten turned upside down. So that now we are slaves to the tyranny of performance and producing and doing and going. And that's what we find when we fast forward once again to Mount Sinai and Moses and the Israelites. God has just brought them out of Egypt. This is a very fallen world. Sin is rampant all over the place. And Israel was under the slavery of Egypt for over 400 years. And God is bringing them out. And what is he doing with them? He is making them a new nation. They're not a nation right now. They're a mob of people that God has called that have been under slavery in Egypt. He has delivered them and brought them out to now form them into a new nation. In essence, a new creation that through them, they would be a witness to all the earth of what the real created order of God is. Of what it means to walk with God. So what is he doing? He's reordering them. Because they've been under the influence for over 400 years under Egyptian tyranny. Under under the, the, the lifestyle and the cultural values and ways of Egypt. That's where they've been. And Egypt was one of the most anti-God nations on the planet. Very pagan, worshiping all kinds of pagan gods. And you know, one of the main things that drove Egypt, one of their main values, is that you're only somebody by what you're able to produce and how you're able to perform. Because that's what all the pagan gods wanted. All the pagan gods demanded that you perform for them, that you produce for them, that you give to them, that you build for them, that you achieve for them, that you accumulate for them. And that's how Pharaoh drove his nation. 
All the people of Egypt, man, it was all about doing. It was all about performing. It was all about producing. All the way down to the Israelites who were the lowliest of all because they were the slaves. you got to build these bricks. you got to do these number of bricks. The only value you had as a human being was based on how well you produced. In other words, a human being was just a commodity. You were a piece of machinery. You were a material. You were a good. You were a service. And if you couldn't produce, you didn't matter. And that's what Israel's been exposed to for over 400 years. So God's bringing them out. And what is he saying? What is he doing? He's reordering them to say, look, life isn't about Pharaoh and Egypt's way. Life isn't found in what you produce. It's found in me. And he's organizing and forming this new people to be his witness according to his order of what things are to be. Now, what's interesting, when we look at this fourth commandment of all the Ten Commandments, it is the longest commandment of all four, of all ten. If you go look, go read, go Exodus 20 on your own and read the Ten Commandments, it's the longest worded one. What's interesting to me is the longest worded commandment is the one that we least really know what it means. Or even recognize what it is. All the other nine, we pretty much have an idea. This one, man, it's just kind of, don't understand it. But you know what many people believe? Many scholars, that the fourth commandment of keeping the Sabbath, it's what holds the other nine together. It's the link. It's the belt, if you will. It's the hinge pin that holds them all together. Now, let me very quickly just go through the Ten Commandments. I'm not going to read them all. We're gonna, if, if, if God had tweeted the Ten Commandments to Moses, this is maybe what it would look like. I'm going to kind of give you the Twitter version, if you don't mind. So it's hashtag Ten Commandments, right? One, no other gods. Two, no idols. Three, no profaning God. Four, keep the Sabbath. Five, honor parents. Six, no murder. Seven, no adultery. Eight, no stealing. Nine, no lying. Ten, no coveting. Wouldn't you have liked it better if that's the way he actually did give it to him? But a whole lot easier to read, right? But here's what I want you to look at. I'm going to kind of Step into the darkness for a moment, if you don't mind. But I want you to look at these. And if, if you remove this, now keep in mind the principle here. The principle is, life is found in God, not in what I can produce. If that's taken out of these other nine, if that's removed, and we, we lose the, my centeredness and who I am is in Him, then these other three, I'm going to have all kind of other gods. If, if I'm driven by what I produce, that performance and producing is what makes me who I am, I'm going to have all kind of gods. I'm going to create every kind of god I can create in order to get what i got to get. If this is going to get me ahead, I'm going to make all kind of gods. No idols, I'm going to have all kind of idols. Whatever idol I need to get me to be able to produce and get ahead. Profaning God, I'm going to profane Him everywhere. If that's going to get me ahead, if that's going to enable me to really produce, so be it. Honoring parents, I'm going to honor my parents if they help me get what I want. If they're in my way, I'm going to dishonor them because it's all about producing and production. No murder? Well, I may not kill you, but I'm going to be cutthroat competition with you. If you get in my way, I'm going to make sure you get out of my way so I can perform and do what I need to do. No adultery? Hey, if marriage works for me and it gets me to where I need to go, then so be it. Otherwise, I'll go find somebody else. Sex just becomes a commodity. I use you in order to get ahead to get what I need. No stealing? Absolutely, there's going to be stealing. You have what I want. I'm taking it from you if that's going to get me ahead. No lying? Yeah, absolutely. Truth is irrelevant. If the truth gets me ahead, great. If lying gets me ahead, so be it. If I need to cheat, that's exactly what I'll do. No coveting? Absolutely. 
absolutely I'm going to covet. You have what I want and I can't get it from you. I'm going to make sure you get separated from it because I can't have it. I don't want you to have it. Does that sound like a culture we might be living in? Look at it. But put this back in. Put this back in. The principle. Life. My future. My purpose. My meaning. My reason for being. My present. Even my past. is all centered and focused and finds its shape in Him. Not in what I can produce. And if that's where I live, then yeah, I'm not going to have any other gods or idols. I want to profane him. I'm going to honor parents because they're a gift of God to me. I'm going to value life. I'm going to value people. People aren't going to be a, a competition to me. People aren't going to be a threat to me. I'm going to value them. I'm going to want what they want. I want to want the best for them. Adultery, men, marriage would become sacred again. I'm going to value what you have. In fact, I'm going to help you get more. I'm not going to lie and cheat because truth, truth is what holds things together. I'm not going to covet what you have <laughs> because I don't need what you have to have life because I've got who he is. Life is found in who God is, not what I can produce. Walter Brugman, who is a well-respected Old Testament scholar, he has written a great deal on the Old Testament. and He, he says this about those that are looking to follow the Sabbath, those that have this Sabbath principle in their lives. He says, they are invited to awareness that life does not consist in frantic production and consumption that reduces everyone to threat and competitor. And as the work stoppage, talking about the Sabbath rest, permits a waning of anxiety, so energy is redeployed to the neighborhood. The odd insistence of the God of Sinai, meaning this odd insistence of Sabbath, is to counter anxious productivity with committed neighborliness. The latter practice, the neighborliness, does not produce so much, but it creates an environment of security and respect and dignity that reaffirms the human project. See, when this Sabbath principle that life is my life, I mean that God is my life, not what I can produce, it reorders everything in me. It reorders how I see people, how I do work, how I do family. It is, it is the hinge pin to this. But here's the key. To me, here's the key. This Sabbath rest, this divine pause, this breathing room that God has put within his created order, it's all found in Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is our Sabbath rest. He's the one that makes it possible for us to even find life in God. He's the one that makes the life, God's life even available to you and I. When you look at the Old Testament, everything written in the law, everything about Moses' law, it all was a shadow, it all was a foreshadowing of the coming of Christ. All the rituals, all the, all the uh, um, customs, all the sacrifice, all of that was, was a temporary thing to point to the coming of this Messiah because Jesus Christ would fulfill all of that. And in Him, everything that these things were to provide, He provides to us. That Jesus Christ is the place of the Sabbath rest in my life. 
meant that I don't have to perform and produce for God, that I can cease trying to perform and produce for Him, and I can settle in to what Jesus Christ has done for me. Does that make sense to anybody? I mean, that's the place of Sabbath rest. It's in who Jesus is and what He has done. And one of the great verses in Scripture is Matthew eleven twenty five, 25, where Jesus Christ says, um, Come unto me, all who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. How many are familiar with that Scripture? Well, let me, I love the message translation. I love how the message translation reads. Look at what the message translation says in Matthew eleven twenty eight 28 through 30. Look at what it says. Jesus' words, are you tired, worn out, burned out on religion? Are, are you tired of trying to perform? Are, are, are we worn out from the chaotic busyness? Are, are we tired from trying to be religious, of trying to perform to God, to, to measure up in some way, to be good enough? Look what he says. Come to me. Get away with me and you'll recover life. I'll show you how to take a real rest. Walk with me and work with me. Watch how I do it. Learn the unforced rhythms of grace. I won't lay anything heavy or ill-fitting on you. Keep company with me and you'll learn to live freely and lightly. Man, that's my favorite part. Keep company with me. And you'll learn to live freely and lightly. That's the place of Sabbath rest. Because if we're not careful, we turn Sabbath rest into a production. I got to produce Sabbath rest for God. No! I cease doing and I settle in to what Jesus Christ has done. I take my rest in Him. And it's in this relationship with Christ that I'm able to keep this Sabbath principle of centered in who my real life is. That I can keep the balance of the busyness and the clutter of my life. Well, how do I stay in step with Christ? What what are some of the rhythms, if you will? What I might call Sabbath practices. Let me just very quickly, I'm going to go through this quickly. Just some Sabbath practices that I offer to you. Now, these practices aren't the Sabbath things. These are just some means by which to help maybe get us into that, that, that principle, that that principle kind of stays alive, that life is found in who God is, not in what I can produce. And, and you know these. These aren't going to be anything profound. But the first one I would offer to you is church. What we're doing right now. You know, it's often thought that Sabbath means Sunday when we go to church. Well, that's not really it. Sabbath was linked to a particular day. Absolutely, God rested on the seventh day. Absolutely, He did. He rested on the seventh day. And Jews today, under Judaism, they exercise their Sabbath on that seventh day. Well, when's the seventh day of the week? Saturday. What day is this? Well, yeah, we're meeting on Sunday. So obviously it isn't just linked to a particular day. But that was the day God rested, the seventh day, Saturday. Now, when Jesus Christ resurrected from the dead, what day of the week was that? First day of the week. Monday. He resurrected, uh, Sunday, excuse me, I don't know my days. Sunday. I was just seeing if you were paying attention. He resurrected on the first day. He resurrected on Sunday. The early followers of Christ, they moved their regular gathering time. Because remember, the first followers were all Jews. They were very much familiar with the Sabbath on Saturday. But the impact of Christ and the understanding that everything of the Old Testament is assumed in Jesus. He fulfills it all. They moved the regular meeting time to Sunday to commemorate 
It's called the Lord's Day. They inaugurated it as the Lord's Day. It's Resurrection Day. We're going to meet on Resurrection Day because that's what gave us life. And made us the new creation that we are. Isn't it amazing that when God created everything, on the very first day, let there be light. Boom! Darkness changed to light. When he made Israel into a new nation, he reorders them with this boom of creation this Sabbath. We come to the new creation called the church. Jesus Christ arises on the first day of the week. Let there be light into the darkness of the sin of humanity that we might have hope and forgiveness of God. We're his new creation as followers of Christ. And we meet on the first day because of that reason. Now, it's still, though the Sabbath isn't linked to a day particularly, this is an exercise of the principle that life is found in God, not in what I can produce. All of you have come here, brought family or friends or whatever, and you are making a declaration. We are breaking away from the normal daily routines of our lives, and we are coming together with a breathing room. We're hitting the divine pause button, and we're coming in here together to say, he is our life, not the stuff out there. It's not what I drove in. It's not what I wore. It's not the home or the apartment or whatever that I came from. It's not the job that I got to go to tomorrow or maybe even later on this afternoon. That isn't what defines me. It is him and him alone. Well, give me praise if you're going to give me praise. So we come in here together and what have we been singing about? Oh, we've been singing about who he is and he's our God and, and, and we want to bless him and submit to him. And we want our prayers to be about that reality, our conversations together. Hopefully the teaching and preaching reminding us once again. We're made by him, from him, for him, to him. Church is a Sabbath practice of this principle. The second thing are the spiritual practices. The, the daily types of things that we might enter into times of prayer on our own private lives where we take a moment to just, again, recenter. We're, we're re-acknowledging that you are my life. The meditation on scripture or, or whatever it may be. But the spiritual practices, they're a Sabbath practice. It's, it's a daily way or at least a regular way throughout the week that I recenter in. I am not a slave of the tyranny of production and performance. A third way I would offer to you is work. Now, that may sound really strange. I thought the whole idea of Sabbath was not to work. Well, here's the thing I'm talking about. Work takes on a whole different meaning when we understand that work isn't who defines me, but he's who defines me. Work becomes worship. I recognize that work is a gift from God to me. God made us workers. It's a part of who we are. It's a part of our divine makeup and that God made us workers. And, and when I see that my work is from God and I see work as worship unto him because he is who my life is, then work takes on a whole new different perspective. I want to be on time to work and I want to do excellent work and I want to be one of the best employers and the best employees, not just to make more money, not just to get ahead, not to have somebody notice me, not to win some kind of award. I do all of that because I want to honor God with my work as worship unto him. You know what happens? Then busyness takes a whole different perspective. And work doesn't become this necessary evil. It actually can become a joy. 
You can roll out of bed tomorrow and actually be happy about it. And not cuss halfway to work. Of course, if you're sitting in traffic, I think God might allow you one or two cuss words. I really do. I, I, just, I think he would cuss having to sit in our... Pr- Obviously, I don't believe that. Don't go at her. Pastor Mark said we could cuss on the way to work. You know, that's awesome. No. But work takes on a whole new dimension. Now, I'm going to set some folks free right now. You want to know another Sabbath practice? Put it up there. Naps. Yeah. Say that out loud with me. Naps. Thank God for naps. You take a nap, you are not a slacker. You are not a loser. God gives us naps. Man, there's nothing greater than the Sunday afternoon nap. How many of you are planning to leave here and go and stuff your faces with as much food as you can and go home and take a nap? Absolutely. Be set free in Jesus' name. Take this body is... is as followers of Christ, is this, not, this body not a temple? Now, I realize that some of our temples are shaped kind of weird ways. I get that. But, nap, or just, just the idea of, am I, am, I, am I taking care of this body? And then, and then a final one. This is not an exhaustive list, obviously. And a final one I would leave to you is just vacation slash family time. And I'm not necessarily just talking about the two weeks through a summer that you might take somewhere along the way and go to Disney World or to the beach. That, that's a part of it, absolutely. But I'm even suggesting just throughout our week where we as a family, we're going we're gonna to shut down the emails and close the computers and we're not going to return some phone calls, at least not at this time. And we're going we're gonna to center in as a family together and enjoy one another and we're going to refocus and recenter about what this family is about that we're not going to be under the tyranny of business of performing and producing, but we're going to, we're going to recenter that, hey, he, he's what provides us life. You know, there's a gentleman by the name of Gabe Lyons, church leader, written several books about the church and Christianity. One of his more recent books is called Next Christians. And he talks about how he got convicted about this whole Sabbath rest idea. And that... He and his wife both. And so they, they worked in once a week to do family stuff. And, and he talks about this. And I just love what he said about it because I think this captures it. And I, I want you to see what he wrote. He said, one day a week I close my laptop, put the phone away, and play on the trampoline with my children. We blow bubbles, paint, make movies, draw Buzz Lightyear, play basketball, and have dance parties that would scare any onlooker. Sabbath has become an intentional pause in our week to refocus and claim What matters most? This is the part. And it reminds us that we are loved for who we are, not for what we can produce. There's the freedom. There's the liberty from the tyranny of the slavery of production and performance. Life is found in who God is, not in what I can produce. As the band comes up, let me just close with these, this, this final thought. And thank you for your attention this, this morning. I, I believe this issue, and I want to, I just, just being up close, just 
Full disclosure and honesty. I want to tell you, this is one of the most difficult sermons I've had to put together in a long time. You know why? Because I don't think I really had a clue as to what Sabbath rest meant. And when I looked at we as a teaching team, which includes Pastor Jeremy and Dr. Josh Rice, who preaches, who's speaking now at our Merida campus, my son Justin, we're the teaching team, if you will. And when we came up with this series at the beginning of the year, and I looked at it and I said, who, what were we thinking when we came up with this? This certainly wasn't God. Because I'll be honest, I, 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 I get under the tyranny of production and performing. This was a very difficult thing because I, I, it took me a long time to really get a sense of what, what is this even talking about. And I don't know that I've even captured it well. But as I was preparing this message, just researching, I came across this blog written by a young lady by the name of Haley. Well, I, I assume she's a young lady. She's a seminary student. And she was just writing in this blog talking about how she had been given an assignment to write a paper on Sabbath rest. And the instructor or the professor said, I don't want a research paper. I'm not looking for like a type of thesis. I just want you to write about Sabbath rest. Now, this was due two days after they had to turn in a 30-page term paper to him. So she had poured all of her energy and everything into the term paper. So now she had two days to get this Sabbath rest thing does. And she was like me. She had no idea what it was. And so she had to dive into all kind of research in two days. And she got her paper finished by midnight of the morning that it was due. It was due that morning or that sometime in that day. And when she read through her paper, she realized, I've written a research paper. I've written thesis. I've done the very thing that professor not to do. And she was so worn out. She was so tired from the other research paper just so feeling the pressure, she just broke out in tears and just just began to weep and cry and finally kind of got her act together and kind of reworked her paper and tried to fit it into what the assignment was and that wasn't working. She got more frustrated, so she closed her laptop, cried some more, and cried cried herself to sleep. Woke up early the next morning, felt a little better, got her cup of coffee, opened up her laptop, and began, she said, I just begin to talk to Jesus. I just began to say to him... I need help. This paper is due later today. I have no idea what Sabbath rest is. I I need your help. Help me understand what this is. And this is what she writes in the rest of her blog. She says, you do not rest because you do not trust. I lifted my head from my hands, eyes still closed in prayer. And I could feel the truth of his words. You do not rest because you do not trust me. I did not rewrite that paper. Instead, in the portion of the paper designated for reflection, I offered up what I had learned in the last 12 hours. I did not trust God to provide. When this summer, obviously this isn't summertime, that has been full of rest, of love, of play, of fun, is replaced by hundreds of flashcards and verb paradigms, research papers, reading, and advanced Hebrew grammar, will I still trust him to provide? If the past three semesters of school are any indication, my answer is both yes and no. Some days I'll trust him to provide, and others I will not. But God's ability to provide is not dictated by whether I trust him to provide or not. God will provide because he is a God who provides all that his children need, even before we know we need it. God will provide because he is a God who understands our asking. 
God will provide because he's a God who knows what we are seeking. God will provide because he's a God who answers our knocking. Brothers and sisters, let us believe that God is who he says he is. And I really believe the whole Sabbath principle comes down to the issue of trust. Do I really trust God to provide? Do I really trust that if I close my computer, shut down the emails, not return these phone calls right now, put that off, maybe not even pursue that, but boy, it could really provide something. It could really do something. Maybe that's not what God, that I really trust that God will provide. I really believe Sabbath rest comes down to this idea. Do I trust who he says he is? Life is found in who God is, not in what I can produce. I invite you to bow your head and close your eyes. I know I've preached a little longer than normal, perhaps. And maybe you'll need a Sabbath rest after this sermon on Sabbath rest. I don't know. but I just invite you for a moment. Maybe you're somebody in here. You're a performer for God. Maybe you get driven by this need to have to perform and produce for Him. And you wonder, do I measure up? Am I doing good enough? God, are you seeing me? God, are you proud of me? I want to invite you to shift all that to Christ. I want to invite you just to begin to exercise that Sabbath rest of trust by simply saying, i got to cease doing for God. And i got to settle in to what Christ has done. He receives us and accepts us and loves us on who Christ is and what Christ has done. That liberates us then to be obedient to Him, not to get Him to love us, not to get Him to try to get attention to us, but because we love Him. Out of our love for Him, I want to do what He asks. But maybe you've got to shift that. Maybe you're a family in here. Man, you are under the tyranny of busyness. It so wraps your life. You're worn out. You're frustrated. You're tired. Can you just begin to shift all that to Him? Can you begin just to ask Him, just like Haley did, help me understand Sabbath. Help me understand what that means. Father, I lift up all these wonderful people in this room here today, including myself. Help us understand what you have given to us as a part of your divine order. That life is found in you, not what we can produce. Help us to understand. God, I pray for those in this room right now that are shifting everything to Christ, that are saying, I'm not going to perform for God anymore. I'm just going to rest in who you are, Jesus, and what you've done. I pray for those families that are just under the tyranny of busyness and drives everything about them. Lord, I pray right now that they would find a newfound peace, a newfound rest in you. Fill their home with that. Help them to unplug. Help them, as Jesus said, to walk in the rhythms of grace that he gives to us. God, I thank you that you've created breathing room for us in your divine order. You are an amazing God. We love you today. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you.